Hey, be seated. Welcome to Mercy Fellowship, where we are saved by Jesus' work. We are changed by Jesus' grace, and we are living on Jesus' mission. And that means that we believe that we make disciples of Jesus Christ who love God and who love people. And so typically what we do uh, in our services is we just walk right through books of the Bible. But as, as we come up on Easter, we're taking a break from our series in Second Corinthians. And so this week, next week, and the week after Easter, um, we'll be uh, taking a break from that and then coming back to Second Corinthians. But today is Palm Sunday. And so we're going to be in Luke chapter 19, uh, verses 28 through 48. And what is fantastic is that I, I very much believe that the church, the people of God across all times, across all places, have been given quite a gift each year in what we call Holy Week, a week that is set apart, that helps us remember the historic nature of the faith that we have in Jesus. Because we individually and collectively uh, seem to be on a, on a pretty uh, big path of deconstruction, right? In the church, people are trying to deconstruct the faith. What, what's real? What's true? Individually, we're doing this. Culturally, we're doing this. Like sometimes in some cities, physically deconstructing things, right? And so we need to have times and opportunities, to be resettled into what's actually true. And so this week, whether you're gathering with us online or, or here in person, know that you are not alone because you are joining with hundreds of millions, if not billions of Christians across the world over this week, having our focus directed to the historic nature of who Jesus Christ is and what he's done. And so this is a week where we will be, uh, I, I hope, in, in your time, spending time in contemplation, time in remembering, time in resting in what's been accomplished by Jesus. And, 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 I, and I pray as well that it is a week that, that helps recenter you on hope. Because there's a lot of things in our individual and collective lives that are very unsettling and can easily discourage us and remove us from having a, a chance of hope, right? We need hope. We for sure need empathy. And we absolutely need leadership. And it seems like there's a great void in all of those things. And yet, we, we, we don't want to just have leadership that is far away and disconnected, like, oh yeah, there's politicians in Olympia or, you know, in D.C., right? You know, we don't want to just have empathy that is that is shallow and doesn't really engage with our emotions and feelings. And we don't want to have a hope that is so far distant that we can't even have a good vision of it to continue to endure. And so we need a present hope and we need a real hope. And, and our God knows this. And he's given us a very real and present hope that we can have today and trust for the future because as we look back on who Jesus is, we can have endurance today and hope for tomorrow as we see that on Palm Sunday, hope, hope in Jesus specifically arrived. And so if you turn your Bibles to Luke 19, as we set um, the scene a little bit, Jesus uh, in the Gospels, he's been performing miracles 
right? He's been preaching. He's been teaching. He's been kind of in the region around Jericho outside of Jerusalem. And now he's turning his attention to Jerusalem, this holy city, this capital city. And he's on his way in during a festival time, a religious patriotic time of Passover, where all of God's people, where the Israelites remember that God used his mighty hand to remove them from slavery in Egypt, that the last final act that God did to release the grip of, of satanic demonic oppression over his people was to have the actual angel of death show up to Egypt and pass over every home that had covered the doorpost with the blood of a lamb, of a sacrifice, to say, no, no, we don't worship ourselves. We trust and worship you, God, creator of the universe. And that's a bit intense, right? That's not how we do things anymore, but that's how God chose to work at that time. It was this symbol of sacrifice. And so God's people are coming in to celebrate freedom, to celebrate salvation, to celebrate deliverance, except as they come into Jerusalem on, you know, around what we know as, you know, 33 AD, that Passover in Jerusalem, it didn't feel like victory. It didn't feel like freedom. It didn't feel like liberty. It didn't feel like, hey, you know, we're, we're, we're crushing it right now. Everything's going great. It was, it was difficult. It was depressing for them because in Jerusalem, as everybody's coming in and trying to worship this mighty, mighty God, there was something greater than their freedom that they were experiencing. And that was specifically oppression from Rome. They knew as much as they want to talk about freedom. Because Passover was kind of like 4th of July and Christmas all wrapped up into one for them. Patriotic and religious. They knew their government was corrupt. They knew they didn't have any real power. They knew that um, their religious worship in the temple, it was like permitted, you know, but with restrictions, Right? And they just, it wasn't this sense of freedom. There was a sense, rather, of, of oppression, where they're kind of in this subculture. They were second-class citizens in the empire. And so they knew that their own government, their, their representatives were corrupt and self-serving. They, everyone knew the real powers in Rome. And so, so people wanted change. They wanted satisfaction, and yet there was a lot of different worldviews and political and religious parties all kind of saying, hey, here's where freedom's going to come from. And none of them could agree. And it's in this backdrop as this city um, starts to fill with visitors, with, with Jews and Gentiles who are there to worship the God of the Bible. At the same time, we'll see that the Roman military presence was getting intense. The, 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 the city was starting to, to not just go from a simmer, but it's, it's, it's coming to a boil. It was not paradise. It was not peace. It was disorder, discrimination, and discord. It, it, it was raining. The city is crying out for a Savior and for a King who's about to arrive in Jesus. If you have your Bibles, I hope you do turn to Luke chapter 19, verse 28. It says this, talking about Jesus. And when he said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. And when he drew near Bethpage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go to the village in front of you, where on entering you'll find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. 
And if anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, the owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus. And throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees, that's the religious, in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered them, I tell you, if these were silent, these very stones would cry out. Okay, let's let's stop here. So here's Jerusalem, right? It's swelling up, ready for this celebration, but there is some serious uh, religious, social, political unrest. The the streets are filling up. Um, Rome is sending in more troops. They're sending in the Roman National Guard, if you will, to try to make sure order is kept in Jerusalem. Everybody's like, the king is coming. The king is coming. And then here he is. Here's Jesus rolling into town and he's rolling in like with a great, like, like on a tank, big procession. No, he rolls in on a donkey and not just like, like any donkey, like not some, some old, big, tired donkey, like, you know, going down, um, you know, the Grand Canyon. No, it, it says actually it, it's a colt. It is a, a young donkey that's never been ridden. So, so it might not even be full grown. So you're, you're seeing like, a, in some regards, a pretty ridiculous scene of a grown 33 year old man riding a small donkey coming into town and everybody's cheering for it. And so it doesn't look like victory. It looks more like humiliation. And so there's a lot to unpack in this scene. But I, I think if you, if you look at these verses and you look at this scene, there's a lot for us to learn about Jesus and a lot for us to learn about what it means to be one of his disciples when we look at this. And so I'm just going to walk through this quickly. Number one, Jesus arrived prepared. Okay, nothing about Palm Sunday, nothing about this entrance Nothing that Jesus ever does is guesswork. Jesus is never like, well, he's going to kind of show up and see how it goes. No, Jesus leads with clarity. Jesus leads with certainty. He knows there's a a donkey in the village. He knows that if his disciples find it, if they ask them for it and bring it back, that somebody is going to care about that young donkey, maybe be a little upset that that randoms from the countryside are coming to to untie uh, the colt and take it with him. And he just says, hey, tell them the Lord has need of it. And, and, And like lays out all these instructions. And I wonder if, like, I don't know. I mean, maybe Jesus used his I'm God superpowers to, like, know that the donkey's there, know that if, you know, he, like, unlocks it, you know, with this verse, it's like, these are not the donkeys you're looking for, right? You know, like, like is it force power, right? It's going to go well. Or, or maybe Jesus just prepared in advance. Jesus is a good leader. Maybe they had a staff meeting beforehand and talked about what this was going to look like, Right? So Jesus has influence. He has followers all over the region, and they're ready to serve him. What we also notice early on in this text is that Jesus gives his disciples some instructions, and they listen, and they, this is a tough word, obey. 
They listen and they obey. They do what he says, uh, and, 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 and he gives these specific instructions. Uh, and, and even for the, the disciples, they're uneducated fishermen. They're, they're probably questioning, like, what's with the donkey? I mean, it's small. Like, I don't really get this. I don't know what you're doing here, Jesus. And, and yet Jesus just gives them the instructions. And they walk out in faith and actually just do what Jesus says before they understand what Jesus means. I think that's important for us as disciples. When, when God arrives in your life, when Jesus is in your heart, when you're following and serving Jesus, we need to have a posture of listening and being ready to respond to what Jesus says for us even before we understand it. Right? And we know like, like a lot of us have kids or we've all been kids and, 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 you know, mom and dad ask you to do something. What's the first response? Why? There we go. Some some parent knows, right? Why? Like just just man, take the garbage out because it, it stinks. Like I don't want it in the house anymore. Right? The why is not you know, just do it. No, these disciples they might have wondered the why, but their posture to Jesus was listening, responding, and obeying. All right, number two, Jesus arrives in humility. They're coming in for Passover, remembering that God used a mighty hand, like God, the creator of the universe, right? Ten plagues, power, glory, might. And yet here's Jesus showing up into Jerusalem. Like it would be awesome to have Jesus show up with like a multitude of angels, right? Big display of force, uh, you, you know, uh, uh, almost uh, 20 years ago, right? It was shock and awe when the U.S. military came into Iraq. Like wouldn't that be great if Jesus just showed up that way? Well, instead... That God, that powerful God who created the universe, actually displays great humility. And we see this all throughout Jesus' earthly ministry, right? I mean, think of, uh, of Christmas. Think about Jesus' birth into a poor marginalized family. Think about Jesus spending, um, you know, 30 of his 33 years in total obscurity. Zero followers on the Instagram for Jesus up until 30. No one knew who he was. Just worked a job, loved his family, listened to his mom, right? Grew up, studied God's word, spent time with God's people, poor, working class, poor region. Even when Jesus did ministry, homeless. Didn't have a place to rest his head, he says. And in this, in Jesus arriving in humility, we see that that God condescends, God comes down to us to meet us where we are and where hope is needed. Because God knows how difficult and how distant life is and seems from Him. And so God meets us where we're at. It's Jesus who left heaven in that throne room to come down to earth in humility. And so we see that in this, that, that hope arrives, Jesus arrives where he's needed most. Okay, number three, Jesus arrived intentionally. And this brings us to uh, the donkey. I mean, you know, if you grew up in the church, you know, maybe you've heard this before, but, but you know, like God has orchestrated this arrival. Okay, Jesus was, was um, you know, prepared. He's intentional. But, but 
in what he's doing. He's not just coming in humility. What Jesus is doing is actually quite historic. So he's using imagery and symbolism that would have been known by the people around him. We don't really know this symbolism that well because we're not steeped in it. But for, for these people, what Jesus was doing had great significance. So we need to understand it too so that it can be significant for us. So when Jesus riding in on a, on a young, unused, unspoiled donkey, he's actually actively fulfilling a prophecy that in that day would have been 500 years old. There's a prophecy given um, by uh, the prophet Zechariah, uh, and we can see this here in Zechariah 9. You can turn there in your Bible. It'll be up on the screen as well. Zechariah 9, verses 9 and 10, uh, says this. Rejoice, O greatly, daughter of Zion, right? City of God, Jerusalem. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous, having salvation, is he, humble, mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foil of a donkey. And so he's like, okay, this is the symbolism he's going with. This is why he's doing this. Jesus knows what he's doing. And he's specifically showing that as he arrives, he's arriving not just as a teacher, not just as a leader, not just as a prophet, but he's arriving as the Savior King of God's people, right? One coming with righteousness, one coming with salvation, one who is a king. These verses go on in verse 10. It says this, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off. He will speak peace, not just to Israel, but to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river. That's actually talking about the river Euphrates, right? All the way to the ends of the earth. All the way to Marysville. Even out to Granite. Darrington will get there, right? You know, eventually, right? So it goes. He arrives as the Savior King. And what he's, he's doing is so clear to his adversaries. See, the, the, the Pharisees that are showing up there, they kind of start to get into the scene here a little bit as he comes closer to the city. Again, this is for a big religious festival. So so the Pharisees, the, the, the religious people, this is their week, right? And here's Jesus, and he's coming in on this symbolism where they're like, wait, we know exactly what that means. This isn't just he's popular. He's coming in and proclaiming he is the Savior King of God's people. And so these guys have spent their whole adult lives scouring over what we would know as the Old Testament, saying, when is the King coming? When is salvation coming? When is hope coming? And then as Rome tightens their grip on Jerusalem, as, as the government continues to oppress its people, as, as their local uh, 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 government leaders, uh, King Herod, uh, starts to raise himself up more and more as the temple worship gets more and more corrupt. They're like, when is it going to end? When is salvation coming? When is a king coming? When is a leader coming? When is victory coming? And then, oh no. It's Jesus. We've been actively opposing his ministry for three years. And now he's saying he's it. He's saying he's the Savior. They've looked to God and His promises for their hope and salvation, and He's actually shown up. 
And so Jesus is publicly and clearly proclaiming that he's the Savior King of God's people. So if, if people come to your door in various states of, you know, white shirts, ties, whatever, or, you know, I, I think, the, you know, plaid skirts and, and, and boots, you know, from the Jehovah's Witness ladies, and they come to your door. Jesus never claimed to be the Messiah. He never claimed to be the Savior. Tell them about the donkey. The donkey means Savior King. And, and the Pharisees know it. He's ruling over his people, not just, it says, the Jewish people, but it's going to be for the whole world. And so, like, like, this should be an exciting time. Like, the Pharisees should be super excited about this. This is our God. We've been waiting for this. And so they either misunderstood or, most likely, they understood what it means and, and they rejected it. And why? Well, this brings us to, to number four. Jesus arrives to fulfill God's expectations for peace, not to meet our expectations for victory. Jesus arrives to fulfill God's expectations for peace, not ours for victory. See, our expectations of the king arriving looks a lot like us in charge. Yeah, we won. Our party won. Our team won. We're in charge now. This is, this is, this is us. And so the crowd that's even around him, they're incredibly patriotic, right? They're like, Jerusalem's going to be made great again. Like we're going to, we're, we're going to be Israel first. This is going to be fantastic. And, and then the critics, they're, they're uber religious and they're like, yeah, social justice is going to reign. Like this is all going to be great. Like, and, and they are not on the same page. And both of them look to Jesus to prop up their political desires and their political designs. They want their kingdom. As we saw in, in verse 10 of Zechariah 9, it, it, the kingdom's not going to arrive with military victory. Right? We, we know what military victory looks like. like. We grew up in and we live in the United States of America. We won World War II. We, we overcame evil. We stormed the beaches. We, we kicked out evil. We, we overthrew Germany. We outlasted the Soviet Union. Like, like this is, we know what victory looks like. But this isn't the way Jesus does victory. The way Jesus does victory, he says, is not through war. He actually says it's going to come through peace, right? He says, I'm cutting off the chariot. And the war horse from Jerusalem, the battle bow shall be cut off. This is going to speak peace. The Jesus' words are so powerful that they are what brings peace. Peace in our world and peace in our hearts. And so he's actually coming not to wage a winning battle of bloodshed. He's coming to bear defeat this week. He's going to take defeat on the cross. And so while this, this patriotic group of people around him and, and the Pharisees around him as well are all getting charged up and there's great intensity, the only significant bloodshed that's happening in Jerusalem this week is Jesus. And it's by his stripes that we'll be healed. It's his blood that will cover our sins and let peace reign throughout the world. And this is so much different from how the world works and how we expect God to arrive in our circumstances. We want strength. We want victory. 
And there is even a picture of it, of strength and victory happening in the city at the same time. Because if you look at a map of where Jerusalem is and Bethany and Bethpage and Jesus is kind of coming in from like, uh, I think it's like kind of the southeast. He's got this procession. And it's Galileans, you know, from the poorest region around Jerusalem. All these people are coming into town. And it would just look like the saddest parade you've ever seen. And on the other end, coming in from from the Mediterranean, from uh, Caesarea Maritama, um, would be Pontius Pilate coming from his 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 base right on uh, the shore of the sea. He would be coming in in an amazing military procession. It was known that Pilate would roll into town and he would wear and he would ride a white horse, big banners declaring Rome as the nation, the empire of peace and victory. Tall standards with eagles on the top that could be seen forever. All of his soldiers draped in armor, all of them in, in, in like the finest Roman apparel. And Jesus' procession, you have beggars laying out their tattered clothes. You have people grabbing branches off the trees and, and waving them around, you know, it's it's springtime. It's it's warm, right? You know, there's some some lush foliage, and they're waving it around. That that's not a gold standard with an eagle on. It. And where our king is on this small donkey, clip clopping along, kind of awkwardly, here comes Pilate, one hoof after another on the stone roads that Rome built on their way into Jerusalem, seeing a temple. It has a marking of an eagle on it so that everybody knows that Rome is the ultimate authority in all things. And he's come with his soldiers and he's come with his troops and he's going to lock that city down. That looks a lot like victory. That looks like power. And it is an intentional show of force. The contrast between these two processions could not be greater. And so anybody that's, that's coming into to that fight, anybody that's coming in and putting betting odds on who's winning Holy Week in Jerusalem. Nobody's betting on Jesus. All the money's on Rome. And by Friday, your, your bet on Rome's looking pretty good because Jesus is on the cross and he's dead and he's buried. But hopefully we know who wins. Anybody Roman right now? No. The empire doesn't exist anymore. Kingdom of God? Been crushing it for 2,000 years. Across every continent, nation, language, tribe, culture. Because our king's alive. And Pilate is just a name in history. And all those emperors are gone. And so, while there are people who are faithful followers, and some of these People around the crowd are fans. They're giving Jesus praise and they're rejoicing. They expect that victory to be immediate. They're expecting victory to, to happen that week. They're expecting Rome to be kicked out. They're expecting the path ahead to be an easy victory. But I mean, if you've been with us in our series in 2 Corinthians, right, a generation out from Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, it wasn't a path of easy victory. Well, I can say that God's people and the kingdom of God rather has been crushing it for a couple thousand years. It's not because all the victories have been easy. It's actually been 2,000 years of endurance in the midst of difficulty. 
of enduring suffering. But see, the, the people that are there for Jesus praising him, they want the kingdom without the king. It says they're praising Jesus specifically. I want to get it right here. Uh, it says they're praising Jesus, whole multitude, with a loud voice in verse 36, 37, really, for all the mighty works they'd see. They like what Jesus can do. Right? Some of those people might have been out at, um, you know, one of the big sermons out there where nobody had any food. And then Jesus started passing stimulus checks out to everybody and they all got fed. Right? It wasn't that. It was, you know, it was fish. It was bread. Right? They're like, yeah, we, Jesus feeds us. Like maybe, maybe a few people were at the wedding where there was no wine left. And the bride and groom were in shame. And all of a sudden, gallons and gallons of the best wine anyone had ever had were created from water. And it was enough to fill the city with joy for that week and to sustain that couple for probably a couple years of of new generational wealth. Maybe some people had been healed by Jesus. Maybe some people had heard about Lazarus. Jesus' friend, who just a couple days earlier was dead and buried, so dead and buried that when they opened his tomb, he, he reeked of death. It's possible that Lazarus was in that procession, in that triumphant entry. And they're like, if Jesus can raise Lazarus from the dead, Rome doesn't stand a chance. Because if we can take out their soldiers, they're dead dead. But, but like if Jesus, if they take out our soldiers, Jesus can just raise them back up again. Like, that's insured victory. Like, like, and there's, there's some truth to that. Like, like our hope in, in victories and resurrection, ultimately, that death is not the end for us. But all that they're doing is showing that they're excited about what Jesus can do for them and not what Jesus is going to do to them or in them. See, they, they, they knew Jesus could kick out Rome, and so they wanted to be prosperous and influential because they were tired of being poor and insignificant. And really, that's what we all want. None of us say, like, on my life goals for the year, for the next five-year plan, I hope I lead to poverty and insignificance. I know we want we want to prosper and 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 be influential or significant in some way. We're not so different. We don't want our hearts to change. We just want our circumstances to change. I'm cool the way I am, but if everything else around me could just get better, then life would be a lot better. Forgetting how much we contribute to the everything else around us not being so great, or how we're the ones that aren't great for some other people. Maybe you're the difficult person for someone else. Maybe you're the circumstances that somebody else is praying would change. But we don't want that. No, we want Jesus to meet our agenda. And for the Pharisees and for the, the patriotic, like, like, like they want to receive Jesus not for who he is, but for who they think he should be. But Jesus is not meant to be an add-on to our political agendas or our personal agendas. Jesus is the embodiment of God's kingdom agenda for the world. And so where the crowds are excited, it's not enough for them to just have passion and enthusiasm. It has to be directed properly. See, they're, they're excited again about the politics of Jesus. You know, that, that, that yeah, I mean, Jesus' platform is political. He says, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But Jesus' action that is so revolutionary 
doesn't come from violent rebellion. But it comes from multitudes of individuals practicing voluntary repentance. That's the revolution. Not Jesus coming in with an iron fist overthrowing the world. But Jesus coming in with love and compassion and overthrowing the tyrant that sits on the throne of our own hearts. So that we can repent. Turn from sin. Turn from worshiping ourselves. Turn from believing we are the emperor of our own kingdoms. And instead respond to humility. So I want you to ask yourself, who do you think Jesus is? Who do you want Jesus to be? Who have you thought that Jesus is? How have you taken Jesus and just kind of changed him a little bit so he fits your agenda? Yeah, my Jesus would never tell me to do anything I'm uncomfortable with. My Jesus would never challenge my worldview on politics or culture. My Jesus would never impact how I spend my finances or express my sexuality. Rather, how does Jesus want to change you? For you to get to be part of his kingdom agenda that is ultimately one of freedom for you and joy. That's what he's calling us to. All right, number five. Jesus' arrival is uncontrollable, uncontainable, and undeniable. Jesus' arrival is uncontrollable, uncontainable, and undeniable. See, like we said, the Pharisees kind of got the picture of what Jesus was doing. The crowd might not have, but the Pharisees for sure did. And so they're trying to get Jesus to, like, like, like hey, Jesus, you're kind of saying you're like the Savior King of God's people, um, and your people are like responding that way. People are like, yeah. We're on team Jesus. We love Jesus. Let's go, Jesus. And, and, and they can't stand it. And so, so they're trying to get Jesus to, to get, Jesus, can you get your people in line? See, Jesus, you, your people are all sold out to you. We need them to kind of stay tied in with the religious and political establishment. Like, yeah, I mean, I know everything's terrible right now and there's lots of oppression and, and Rome's in charge and we're powerless, but you know, if you upset that, like, it could get really hard and difficult. Let's just be quiet and keep our heads down and just kind of not rock the boat. And Jesus won't do that. Jesus is not like, oh, okay, so I'm quiet. Hey, guys, calm down. Can you just say, I'm a nice teacher? Can you just say, oh, I'm a, I'm a good prophet? Or can, can you just kind of say, like, well, I'm, 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 like, I'm kind of like Yoda. Like, I can do some tricks, and, and, but I'm not really anything that significant. Jesus isn't having any of that. They're trying to control Jesus. They want to contain Jesus because they're the religious ones. They're the ones that people had to go through to know and understand who God is. And instead, God actually showed up in the flesh and says, I'm here, come to me. I'm here, I've come to you. You don't, you don't need to worry about the Pharisees. They're studying God's word. Yep. Yep. All of the Old Testament true, right? Yep. It all actually points to me as Jesus. I'm here now. You can have a relationship with God. You can be reconciled to God through one name and one name only, and that's Jesus. And so he won't be controlled by the Pharisees. And they're just saying, hey, could you not let your people get too excited? Just don't let them equate you with the Messiah because that might upset Rome. 
Rome's got their Caesar. He's the son of God. He's the savior king of, of all the people. And if you say you're the savior king, you're the Messiah, you're the Caesar, if you will, Rome doesn't like that too much. Like you're definitely getting kicked off Twitter for that. Like, like no, we're shutting you down. Like you don't get to be involved in public discourse at that point. So they don't love Rome, but they do fear it. And they don't want to see their perceived security undone. And so what can happen is nobody in the presence of Jesus can ignore him. When Jesus shows up in your life, when Jesus is invading your heart, you cannot be apathetic to who Jesus is. You will either grow in agitation. I don't like this. My king on my throne, my queen on my throne does not like what's happening here. Or, and I pray this for you. You would not grow in agitation, but instead, rather, you would be transformed into admiration. Nobody else can stop you from responding to Jesus. The Pharisees cannot stop the crowd from responding to Jesus because Jesus is undeniable. Like when you're experiencing Jesus, when Jesus arrives, when you meet Jesus, when you see Jesus, you're going to respond. It can't be controlled or contained. Um, think about it this way. I don't, I don't know if you saw this in the last week, but like, hey, good news, Disneyland's opening up. Anybody excited about that? I'm excited. Disneyland's opening up. I'm not going to go, but I'm excited that somebody can, right? If you're in the state of California uh, and you're a California resident, you can go to Disneyland, which is great. But when you go to Disneyland or any theme park in California and you get on that roller coaster, like um, for, for one of my daughters and myself, one of our favorite rides is the Incredicoaster. Anybody done the Incredicoaster at California Adventure? There's this one really cool part where it smells like chocolate chip cookies, which I can't eat anymore because of the gluten. We're still on that. I haven't lost that. Okay. Um, right, but it's awesome. But what do you do on a roller coaster? What do you do? Anybody? You scream! Guess what? State of California and the, the, the whole like um, uh, theme park industry said, well, if we're going to open because of COVID, you can ride the roller coaster, but you can't scream. Are you kidding me? No, that is undeniable. That is, I'm just going to say it. That's ridiculous and insane. You're on the roller coaster. No, because it's overwhelming. Yeah! Incredible coaster! Woo! Like, that's how you respond. Jesus shows up undeniable, uncontainable. You're going to respond because of who he is. Because of how great he is. Because of how scary it is, but how glorious it is all at the same time. And only a Pharisee would tell you to not scream on a roller coaster. And only a Pharisee and say, Jesus, just tell your people to be quiet. Don't preach the gospel on Easter. Don't preach Jesus' resurrection on Easter. Preach, preach how people can, can just have a, have a second chance. No. We preach Jesus. We talk about Jesus. We want to see Jesus change people's lives. You cannot stop or contain Jesus. And you cannot stop or contain people responding to Jesus. And so Jesus tells the Pharisees, look, Nice try. I'm going to go ahead and double down on Messiah. And he quotes um, kind of an obscure prophecy in Habakkuk. I believe it's chapter 2.9. I didn't write it down here. But, but it says here 
If they tell you these were silent, the very stones would cry out. It's from Habakkuk 2.11. So Jesus doubled down on Savior King, and those verses in Habakkuk are talking about creator of the universe. Oh, I'm not just a religious leader. I'm not just a political leader. I'm not just some sort of spiritual savior. I'm the creator of everything. And if you tell my people to be quiet, if you tell people to be silent on a roller coaster, don't worry, there's nothing to scream. You can put rocks on the roller coaster. Actually, I don't know if it would work too well, so I thought I'd through. But okay. You can put rocks on the roller coaster, and those rocks would scream. Because I'm the creator of the locks. I'm the creator of the vocal cords that make people scream. I'm the creator of the hearts that are going to be softened and changed. See, each one of us, apart from the work of Jesus in our life, has a stone heart. And God and his Holy Spirit takes out that heart of stone and puts in a heart of flesh. So if your faith and hope and trust is in Jesus in any way, shape, or form, that's because you are a rock that's crying out the truth of who Jesus is. Because he's made your heart of rock cry out to him. If that's not you, if you're like, I, I don't know, I, I, just, I hear Jesus, I hear agitation. No, I like my king or queen on my throne. But something in you is realizing that you're maybe not the best God of yourself. That your self-determination might not always work out to the flourishing you are. But I encourage you to ask God to change your heart. And that is a prayer he will answer. He'll give you a new heart. One that cries out for him. There's so much more here and how Jesus responds, but I think that's where I want to see us be a people who are ready, prepared, intentional, to see Jesus as undeniable, uncontrollable, and uncontainable. As you go through this week, I encourage you to keep reading through Luke and read about how Jesus comes to the city and sees Jerusalem and, and he mourns. And he mourns because it's a city that's meant to be holy and set apart, and yet it's been corrupted. And when you think about our culture, you think about our cities, and those things that break your hearts for our cities, they break God's hearts too. They break Jesus' heart too. And Jesus mourns over sin. He mourns over brokenness. But he's not inactive. Because if you look, we'll see, uh, read tomorrow. I encourage you to read um, Luke uh, chapter um, 19, verses 45 through 48. You're going to see that Jesus comes into the temple. And when Jesus comes into the temple, like his... First order of business, Monday morning, Jesus rolls into the temple. And what does he do? He, he cleans out these corrupt money changers who, who were just, they, 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 were, they were racist. They were racketeering. Like they, they're, they're people who uh, were taking advantage of all the different races that were coming in um, to worship God in the temple by overcharging them. And, and there's a lot of systemic issues there. And, and don't, don't get some weird vision of woke Jesus, okay? Like, but what Jesus is doing is he's coming in and he's, he's seeing like, my house, my temple is supposed to be a place of worship and prayer and healing. And instead, you're using it as a tool of oppression. And so Jesus actively agitates. Like when Jesus arrives, he's more than comfortable 
to agitate, not just to upset you, but to clear out space for you to have a pure heart, one that is a place. See, you're the temple. I'm the temple. We're the temple. Our hearts are temples made for worship. And Jesus comes in and he cleans it out and removes obstacles and barriers from us being able to worship him, to love God, to love one another, so that we can experience healing, communion with God, and peace. And then he teaches and he spends time with his disciples. And on Thursday night, he institutes communion that we're about to take. Where he says, you know, I'm going to give you a new covenant, a new promise for how you're going to interact with God. And how you're going to remember God. And it's going to be that every time you gather, you're going to take the bread. And you're going to break it in remembrance of my body broken for you. And you're going to take the cup of wine or of juice and you're going to... You're going to drink it, and you're going to remember my blood shed for you. And then he backs that up on Friday with the cross, where his body is broken, where his blood is shed. And we're going to gather together Friday night at 7 o'clock for a good Friday in person and online, and we're going to remember that while our king arrived, he was also buried. And then on Saturday, you're going to be willing to spend time in, in silent contemplation. You don't have a lot of verses for what happened on Saturday. But it for sure was a time of tension. For sure was a time of maybe hopelessness for many, right? Jesus is in the tomb, he's buried. And then a week from today, we're going to gather. We're going to celebrate that our king who's arrived, who, who died, who is buried, is risen and is reigning. We're going to remember the resurrection on Easter. We're going to celebrate baptisms for people who pledged allegiance to Jesus, who, who, where Jesus has come into their hearts and kicked out those puny tyrants that are ruling us now and, and seated himself on the throne for their freedom and for their joy. So I encourage you, wherever you're at, to spend time this week in prayer, to invite people to gather with us on Good Friday, to invite people to be here on Easter so that we can remember who God is and, and what he's done, that, he, that Jesus is uncontrollable and undeniable. And that nothing we can do can stop what, what he is doing in the world. And all we can do is surrender and join in the triumph as we simply trust Jesus.